0: You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Katherine Cruz. It's been about a week since the Health Department gave the all-clear for users of the military's water system. This morning, we talked to Deputy Environmental Health Director Kathleen Ho to better understand our emergency response to our fuel-contaminated water and the future risk to our aquifer. We are starting to move from an emergency response to deal with displaced families to a remediation phase. Here's Ho.
1: The water distribution that is going into the homes and businesses of these 19 zones is not coming from the Red Hill shaft, but coming from a different shaft. And so the Red Hill shaft that was contaminated is no longer in use.
0: And what is the status of the Red Hill shaft? Is there still a plume? The long-term plan for
1: the Red Hill Shaft is that the water is still being taken out of the shaft in an effort to create a capture zone so that if there is a plume there, it will be siphoned in, into the Red Hill Shaft up through what we call the the gax, so it's like a, the filter, and then it will go into into the stream and out to Pearl Harbor. And so far, there hasn't been any exceedances of petroleum coming out of the Hill uh, shaft. We have another team of experts within the Department of Health that is working on the aquifer recovery and long-term monitoring of the water in the aquifer. And so what we intend to do is to drill further more wells to figure out where There is a plume, and if there is a plume, and just the state of the the aquifer in an effort to remediate the aquifer to ensure that there is safe drinking water for the people of Oahu.
0: I understand that uh, you told lawmakers that uh, the costs of uh, the department to date with this response is, what, more than a million dollars?
1: We anticipate the cost to the department or to the state of Hawaii from the beginning of the incident until June 30th to be approximately $4.5 million. But we are asking the legislators for $1.5 million in an emergency appropriation because that is the amount that we have received bills for. So the cost for this response and the long-term remediation will be much more than uh, the $1.5 million that we're asking for the emergency appropriation. But that's just the cost that we have
0: to date. And then have we worked out some kind of plan with the military on possible reimbursement for those costs at all?
1: The military has said that they would reimburse us but we don't have we don't have an agreement to do that we do have our law which allows the department of health to seek cost reimbursement to the responsible party for all of our costs we fully anticipate that they will reimburse us mm-hmm. for our costs but If they don't, I am prepared to bring an action to seek reimbursement for our costs in accordance with our law.
0: What can you tell us about concerns that uh, military families may have about fumes?
1: What we've done is we've set up a mechanism in which military families can call in to the Department of Health or email the Department of Health their concerns, and there is a rapid response team in order to go out to the various homes who have experienced uh, some complaint about their drinking water system and are prepared to take samples. We have several cases um, against the Navy. We have the permit uh, case We have our October notice of violation for the pipelines, and we have our emergency order. They are all proceeding. We, you know, and that in light of the Secretary of Defense's memorandum dated, I believe it was March 7th, calling for or directing the Secretary of the Navy to defuel and decommission the 20 tanks. Those are all still in play. And so we are still enforcing in our minds, in the Department of Health's minds, the emergency order is, must still be complied with and now coupled with the memorandum from the Secretary of Defense. We are optimistic that it will be done in a timely fashion. Although the emergency order does dictate to the Navy that they must ensure that there is an independent contractor who will come up with a work plan that is suitable to the Department of Health, which we are ensuring that they comply with, with our emergency order.
0: The military did acknowledge that they have started a second review uh, on the incident of last year that led to this leak. Uh, what do you make of that?
1: I'm encouraged that they're looking at and trying to do an internal review of the of the incident, we have not seen the first report, and I I would like to see it. We obviously would like to see the second report. Hopefully, we will be able to get these reports in order for us to do our review and ensure that the tanks will be defueled in a methodical manner that is protective of public health.
0: Anything else you want to underscore just to the, the you know broader community about where we're at in this response? The
1: Department of Health wants to be clear with both the listeners and the military that we are the regulators and that we will ensure that both the uh, distribution system is going to be protective of public health and the environment in addition to the defueling and the long, and the aquifer recovery that Farm NFLS has a mission to protect public health and the environment and we will do so.
0: Have you heard anything more on the EPA review as well? I have not. I, I know that they came
1: out mm-hmm. to do an inspection. I have not seen a report. Getting people back in back into homes was the first step and the second step really is the long-term and recovery of our aquifer and that that is an important piece that we are we're working on
0: that was Kathleen Ho Deputy Environmental Health Director talking to us this morning about this latest phase of dealing with our Red Hill water crisis mm-hmm. The median price of a single-family home here on Oahu is now $1.4 million, according to Locations Hawaii. The high cost of housing in our state makes life difficult for just about everyone, but can also push our low-income residents to the brink and beyond. Matthew Desmond is a Pulitzer Prize-winning sociology professor at Princeton. His research focuses on poverty in America, housing insecurity, and racial inequality, among other things. He'll be giving a free lecture on the University of Hawaii Manoa campus tonight entitled Defending Home, How to Protect Renters and Fight Poverty Beyond the Pandemic. The Conversation's Russell Sibiano sat down with
2: Desmond. How did you come to choose this area of expertise or did it choose you?
3: That's a great question. So I think in a way it chose me. I didn't grow up in a poor family, but money was always tight. You know, we had gas shut off, home got foreclosed before it was all the rage, you know, and everyone else was doing it. So I think there was a part of me that was always troubled by poverty, but then there was a a part of me that looked at the poverty debate that we were having and was like, we're missing something. You know, there was a lot of talk about jobs, family, welfare policy, but not a lot of folks were talking about housing, unless you were living in a community where housing and eviction were incredibly potent part of your life. And so I thought we needed a a different take on it, a book about poverty in America, but one that really looked at the role that housing and eviction played in worsening the problem.
2: How familiar are you with the housing situation here in Hawaii? I'd say
3: I'm familiar with it uh, as someone that, that looks at Hawaii, but that yeah. obviously doesn't live here, though, you know? And so I know Hawaii has one of the highest costs of living in the nation. I know there's a struggle that Hawaii is facing between people who, who, who want to develop and people that are resisting development. And that's a struggle that, that we're seeing in, in places like California and Washington and New York as well. So in some aspects, the Hawaiian housing situation is, is like
2: other, other places in the country, but in some aspects, it's very unique. When I look back at the last 15 years or so, I can kind of see the gap widening between those that own property and those who don't own a home. And sometimes I think we kind of feel like we're alone in this. Are you seeing this in other cities as well that have this kind of high cost of living?
3: No that's huge. I mean the the difference between being a renter and being an owner in America is one of the most salient dividing lines we have. You know, the housing market isn't broken, it's just bifurcated. You know what I mean? Like it works pretty well for 2 out of 3 Americans. You know, mm-hmm. those are the Americans that own their home. They, they have a wealth generator. They have some stability. Yeah, but yeah. for their, the other third of us, you know, the housing market can feel incredibly brutalizing. And we've seen rents basically double all across America over the last two decades. But incomes for a lot of folks have just remained stagnant. You know, and the government really hasn't stepped up to help. And those are the three ingredients that are really creating the housing crisis, how housing costs are just so outpacing so many people's incomes. And, you know, the division between being an owner and being a renter has historical roots too, right? And this is where kind of the story really touches on on racial division and legacies of privilege or disadvantage, depending on who we are.
2: And I think when many of us look at the cost of homes here or what the rent is for a nice place in a good neighborhood, many times the prices make us feel homeless. When you Mm -hmm. look at cities that have similar levels of cost of living, is there anything that our state leaders can learn or duplicate when it comes to low-income housing or homelessness? There's so many good ideas out there. And one of the best parts of
3: my job is going around the country and meeting folks that are just putting in the work. Uh, driving down family homelessness, trying to figure out creative solutions to the problem. A big part of this problem is taking place in the courts, right? So when you think of a court, you usually think of there's lawyers on both sides, they're being adjudicated, but that's not what eviction court looks like, right? Eviction court, you know, there's no right to an attorney in civil court in most places in the United States. So eviction court looks like an eviction processing plant. So, you know, providing families that are facing eviction and facing homelessness with real legal support, that makes a huge difference. You know, when New York City instituted a right to counsel an eviction court, they dropped their eviction rate by 40% over the next few years. And so it's a, it's a huge intervention. So I think starting in the courts is a good place to start in triage. Or you go to Philadelphia and Philadelphia has mandated an eviction diversion program. It's really simple. It's like, if you're a landlord and you want to evict a tenant, you got to go through the diversion program first. And hopefully it's a win-win-win. Hopefully it's a way to get the property owner paid keep the family in the home and avoid an eviction. And so it sounds really simple, but it's actually, you know, not the norm in the country. And so there's a lot of things we can do in the court to help. Why do you suppose it's not the norm? I think evictions become normalized to us, you know, and I think that eviction has become seen as a solution to a problem instead of a problem itself, you know, and I think that sometimes I still meet folks that say, well, if someone got evicted, they must have screwed up. You know, they, they were irresponsible. They didn't pay their rent. But, you know, I tell them stories like, you know, one of the, the folks that I write about in my book, it was a, a single mom. Her name was Arlene. She was raising two young kids and she was paying over 80 percent of her income just on rent and utilities. And you know what? Arlene isn't alone. About one in four renters below the poverty line are paying over 70 percent of their income. Yeah. Just on rent and utilities, which means like you don't need to make a big mistake to get evicted. And so I think the more we start looking at eviction as a problem, something that shouldn't happen, especially shouldn't happen so much. You know, basically the population of Seattle is threatened with eviction every month in America. Oh That's my. just unacceptable. Yeah. And so I think that I think that we've normalized eviction and we've we've demonized or sold short families that are, are facing this instead of, of looking at it as something that that should happen. And only in the most extreme and rare
2: circumstances. Sounds like the situations are not always the same. There's always some sort of nuance to maybe a lot of the eviction situations. You know, speaking of evictions, I know that you're the principal investigator for the eviction lab, which tracks housing and eviction patterns in cities across the country. How does that data that you collect there, how does that kind of filter down and help the average renter or the average low-income resident?
3: So I put my book out in 2016 and I'd go around the country, you know, I'd go to LA or I'd go to Baton Rouge. And uh, now I have the opportunity to be in Honolulu and mayors and soccer moms, just anyone that I interacted with would be like, well, what's our eviction rate? How, where is the problem here? You know, who is this affecting? And I just had no answers to those questions, right? Like the the federal government doesn't collect eviction data, which is Mm -hmm. insane to me you know it imagine if we didn't know how many folks got in car accidents or graduated from high school like these basic questions that we need answers to have a high functioning society we didn't know when it came to how many folks live in their home so I formed a team at Princeton, and, and we call ourselves the Eviction Lab, and we've collected about 100 million eviction records now from all over the country. We've sought them out wherever we could find them. You know, we found eviction records in trailers in West Texas. You know, we got chased out of an eviction court in Kentucky, and we put this out, we put this data out there. We put it out there as fast as we could after we validated it, and what we wanted to do is to make sure anyone can interact with these data. So if you all go on our website, which is called evictionlab.org, you can search evictions in your community. Now, we don't have every single community in America, but we have a darn lot of them. And you can see what eviction looks like in your state, in your town. You can compare your city to other cities. You can see what communities are getting evicted a lot. And, you know, I think it will surprise you. There's a lot of stuff that surprised me about the data and what the data are, are a way to tell a story. They're a way to bring this problem in front of our community, in front of our local leaders, in front of our business leaders and say, this is much too much instability. Look at all these kids getting evicted every year from our school system. Look at these communities that are just getting turned over every year. I think the data allow us to tell the stories in a different kind of way. You
2: know, whenever there are discussions about affordable housing, a lot of the focus is on what more the government or NGOs can do is there more that the public or that individuals can do so f- for the renters listening especially for the renters
3: who might be facing eviction or feeling strapped the biggest challenge i think is to to really face that problem head on it's really tempting to avoid talking to your landlord during that pro- during that process it's scary it's intimidating. it's flat out depressing you know and you just kind of feel the weight of the world And that really works against you. I mean, that's when landlords get frustrated. And so I'd suggest if you're going through it, seek out your community, seek out your people, invite them into the problem with you, seek out legal help, don't face it alone. For the homeowners listening to this, the thing that we can do is be welcoming. Everyone kind of likes the idea of more public housing in theory, but the question is, do we like it in our neighborhoods? And I hope that more of us start showing up to those city council meetings and being the voice that says yes like i want this in my community i would love for my kids to go to school with these kids i believe that this is part of what it means to be an american and i want to put my community on offer for that what happens is the folks who show up to meetings are not saying that you know right. they're saying no and they're saying don't build and they're putting a lot of blocks in between um, themselves and prosperity and opportunity for other families. And I think we need more voices in the room and we, we need to really make a, a moral check. You know, if we in Hawaii want to consider ourselves a progressive people or a people that are community based, like a lot of Americans do, I think we got to put our money where our mouth is on this stuff.
0: That was Princeton psychology professor Matthew Desmond talking with HPRS Russell Subiono. Desmond is a featured speaker at the Orbis Auditorium at the uh, University of Hawaii Manoa campus tonight at 6:30 p.m. We'll have a link to reserve a seat on the conversation page of our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
4: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Richardson School of Law. Its Master of Laws offers specializations to help attorneys expand their field of practice in areas such as environmental law. More at law.hawaii.edu. And last week's Wait, Wait, Roy Blunt reminded us we've been fighting about daylight saving time for a while. Many, many years ago, uh, they, they argued about this every year. They tried to do it. And people would say things like, all I know is the cows don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel Join us for this week's show at the Standard Time. That's the news quiz from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org.
0: now time for our daily dose of reality our segment with Honolulu civil beat is with political reporter blaze level he has news of a campaign spending probe good morning blaze
5: hey Catherine thanks for having me back
0: yeah so uh, this is interesting tell us uh, who we're talking about here who's uh, getting the, the, the once over by the Commission
5: so yesterday the campaign spending commission they're in charge of looking into political contributions in the state uh, they released an investigation uh, the commission is alleging that JL Capital CEO Timothy Lee illegally funneled $12,000 to mayoral candidates in the 2020 elections uh, the staff's investigation focuses on uh, reimbursements that Lee allegedly made to his employees in exchange for them uh, donating some money to uh, Keith Amamia and Kimberly Pine when they were running in 2020. So the investigation, it, you know, kind of lays everything out. It says that three employees were reimbursed with checks uh, and one with cash.
0: Well, so for people who don't know who Mr. Lee is, uh, uh, tell us about him.
5: Yeah, I, I didn't know uh, who the company was or who Lee was, on, you know, until this investigation came out. But uh, for listeners who don't know, J.O. Capital—they're the firm behind Scott, the Sky Alamoana condos that's being built right now near the Alamoana Shopping Center. Uh, the firm is focused on, you know, some development and transit transit-oriented development areas, especially around Alamoana. That's actually according to a H.P.R. interview from a few years ago, and a lot of those uh, construction projects. Uh, that the firm was focused on, particularly Sky Ala Moana, it required exemptions from the city council a few years back when it was first being proposed. They've since taken over the development from the former developer called the Avalon
0: Group. And so, gosh, uh, so the employees then, what, made contributions to uh, certain uh, uh, lawmakers and then what, were just reimbursed uh, by their boss?
5: Yeah, that's right. So the commission names four different employees and Uh, uh, allegedly Lee asked them to donate to the campaigns for Amamia and Pine. And in exchange, they would be reimbursed uh, cash. And in Hawaii, that's illegal. And the Campaign Spending Commission is leveling uh, uh, eight counts of, it's called false name contributions, against Lee. And the commission lays out a lot of evidence in its report. It includes bank records for Lee and his employees. There's check images in that. Uh, investigation report. And there's also emails indicating that Lee's assistant asked employees to send images of the cleared checks that were made out to those campaigns. I'd I just like to point out at this point, though, that, you know, uh, this, all, all, all of this report that the commission laid out, that the staff laid out, it, it's right now just considered, you know, allegations that were made as a result of the investigation. Uh, the campaign spending commission, they actually deferred a, a hearing and a vote on the investigation until next month and so until that happens uh, you know it couldn't be considered finalized and the Mm -hmm. commission has a couple options they could ask the staff to investigate further they could just drop all the charges or they could refer it to the attorney general's office for a possible criminal prosecution.
0: So why did they put it off the vote
5: yesterday? They put it Uh, He represents Mr. Lee. Uh, He had a conflicting court date, so he asked that they continue the hearing to uh, next month so that he and Mr. Lee could attend.
0: And then just to be real clear, so the investigation, the probe is really around um, uh, this developer and what he did, and not so much about the uh, 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 politicians or the lawmakers who got uh, the donations through their campaign.
5: Yeah, that's a good thing to point out. So the commission's investigation was focused solely on Lee, and all the counts are made against him and not the other employees. Uh, the staff told me yesterday that they didn't find any evidence that Amamiya or Pine knew what was going on, and Amamia's campaign also denies that, uh, you, you know, they had any way of knowing that Lee was uh, was allegedly funneling money to their campaigns through his employees.
0: And I don't know if you uh, had any opportunity to reach out to any of these employees or to hear, you know, their stories.
5: Um... We did not, but uh, there's a written statement from one of the employees named Norman Chan that's attached to the commission's investigation, and he lays out uh, kind of a chronology of events of Lee asking employees to make out these donations. He apparently spoke to another employee who worked at the firm longer and said that they've you know, bundled uh, checks like this before and gotten reimbursed for um, for donations in the past, but uh, what race that was for and in what year that wasn't uh, laid out in the commission investigation.
0: All right, well, we'll just have to see um, what happens when they take this up again uh, next month. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Uh, read the full story. Visit civilbeat.org. in a name. All well, this week we've been examining different stories around changing the name of a school. Today, the question of whether to rename McKinley High School takes center stage. The House Education Committee will hear dueling resolutions this afternoon. One set of resolutions wants to change the name of the school back to Honolulu High School and to remove the statue of President McKinley from the campus. Another set urges the state to honor McKinley High's 132 fallen soldiers by safeguarding and preserving the name of McKinley High School. The conversation. Cillian Song sat down with school principal Ron Okamura, who recalls the push to change the name dates all the way back to when he took the helm 14 years ago.
6: It was truly about looking at education. You know, talking about you don't censor history. You don't you know do any kind of things to change it, because you got to know. So that's always been my stance to what's going on here and the continuation of this movement. This school, in this current location, has never been Honolulu High. It's always been McKinley. When it was Honolulu High, it was across the street, yeah? So that's one thing I really want, that people always, oh, you know, it's Honolulu High, then we change it. But when you look at the history of it, it was never Honolulu High on this campus. It was always McKinley High School. And there's a whole backstory to all of this. And, you know, what we kind of go up about is looking at, truly, our local culture. One question you always get asked in your adult life, especially here in Hawaii, is where you grad from. And it's not your college. Yeah, It's about what high school did you graduate from. And that is really important for us as as local people who were born and raised here, because that gives you a sense of belonging, gives you a sense of place. Growing up. McKinley High School was always held in such high, you know, honor as far as from us local kids growing up. And you know, when I was going to UH and you ask somebody where they graduated from and they tell you McKinley, it, you you kinda of stand a little straighter, talk a little bit of English. You know, I've talked to many, many people about this and you know, both you know, pro and con. And one of the things I always tell them, I said, you know, who makes that decision on what name gets to stay? I'm a US history major. One of the things I always teach the kids about is that people who have done great things in history have also a dark side. Because you cannot be a great person, a great leader, a great whatever, right, without upsetting somebody and stepping over somebody or conquering somebody in order for you to get to that position that people know you for. So my stance has been, if you want to change one, you change them all. You want to take away the statue, you take them all. Because who's to say that that person deserves to be there and this person doesn't that's always been my stance because you want to make sure that history is never forgotten history is always explained you know and and i tell people all the time that we teach all sides of what goes on good bad the ugly and we let our kids make their decisions after that but you have to give them that perspective of every single side that was the reason why we exist today and that's what history teaches us. You don't make the same mistakes again. My stance has always been, it's not about outsiders. It's not about even me making the decision to change the name or not. It really should fall with alumni. People who have a vested interest, that's the most important people you listen to. The current students and the former students. Because, you know, a lot of them, blood, sweat, and tears went into this school for them. You know, And I think for them, that's a decision, that's something that they should be left up to make, whether or not the school remains McKinley School or something else. The decision should be made, not by people who have really no vested interest in it, but for those who really came here, ate here, you know, learned here. They always ask me, is there a compromise? And I said, the compromise would be, well, we're still not going to change the name. And as far as the statue is concerned, the compromise would be that, you know, what they did with Queen on statue, they put a plaque to kind of correct the uh, inaccuracies. I do the same. I put one up here. I even altered the Treaty of Annexation, so I take that off, you know? Just to have something like that so that people can understand that, you know, yeah, in the history of Hawaii, this is the role that he played. And what people don't realize, McKinley was not the one who really was pushing for the overthrow. He was just a president who approved it. You look at it, it was from a big push for the Big Five, which was the big industries like the sugarcane and pineapple guys. Because of the economic sanctions that were placed against them, and if they were part of America, they would have those tariffs. Jim McKinley just was there as the president. Resolution passed through Congress. Boom, he approved it. So, you know, that perspective, people got to understand as well, too. But bottom line, no matter what, who's going to make the decision? Who's going to say that this person should be erased and this person not? And you change one. You got to change them all. It's not piecemeal. If you're going to make this change, you change everything one time because I don't want to be the one that, okay, all of a sudden we we get forced to change our name. And then everybody's supposed to, but then the legislature changes over and the board of ed changes over and it's okay, you know, we don't have to do that anymore. Then that's unfair to the schools that did make the change.
7: This has been addressed by the school community, right? By Mm -hmm. the school community council.
6: Yes. So we had several meetings to kind of touch the topic because as we saw it coming down the pipe, if you go back, when I first got here, there was, I forget who it was, but there was a coalition of people that actually met with me, discussed the name change. You know, it was from then I said because they wanted to see, okay, here's a new guy. And maybe he will be more receptive to to what we want and i've always been open for discussion and like i said the decision is not only mine there is a whole bunch of people you gotta go at the legislature the the boe you know the department of education itself and you know the community so i say oh you know you can make the decision no i don't i'm just one piece in this whole mechanism what comes about as far as school level decisions and things that happen at the school act 51 has created the school community councils, which has direct, um, I guess, influence over what happens at the school, from budgeting to curriculum, down to even the name changes and things like that. So through that vehicle, because it's mandated to us, it's by law that we have to do it, this question was put up to them and it became really serious last year because of the fact that there was this huge rise in the, the legislature trying to push it through. So the school community council met, and this was back in December, and came up and said, okay, we're gonna take a stand. We don't want the name to be changed. We write our formal letter saying we with our decision, sign it and send it to the board. Letting the board know that this is our stance for this school. And we have petitions out, people are signing petitions. So, you know, there's one petition that says, you know, change the name and there's another to stop the change. So, you know, it, it is out there. But the school community council should be the one. If that's what the law is saying, that's what our policy dictates and procedures dictate, then to me, that's the ultimate decision. Because if not, if the board is going to override it, then why even have school community councils? You know. And I think that's the message that, that comes across from here. Who has a decision-making authority at a school?
0: And that's what H.P.R.'s Lillian Song, uh, at, at who we've heard, Lillian Song, talking with McKinley High School principal Ron Okamura, about the efforts to rename the school. So what do McKinley graduates think? Uh, Kara Kalai submitted this testimony. I would like the statue of McKinley removed and the name changed back to Honolulu High. As a Kanaka Maoli and alum of McKinley High School, I found it extremely offensive to have to to be constantly reminded of the lie that Hawaii was legally annexed to America. Having to graduate in front of his statue, seeing Hail McKinley, Hail made me nauseated to say the least and I only participated in the ceremony to make my family happy. We also heard from other alums, starting with Serena, class of 2020. She's now at University of Hawaii at Manoa, sophomore.
8: President William McKinley was a very important person in the annexation of Hawaii or the overthrow of Hawaii of the queen. And even though like I'm not a native Hawaiian myself, like I feel very strongly about it because even though I didn't really learn about the annexation through my K through 12 years, as like a college student, I've learned and took classes to educate myself on this issue, so I feel very strongly that the name change is a reasonable uh, consideration. It's just like a high school that I went to, so if it, if it did have like a name change, I wouldn't really mind it. I would still be a graduate of that high school. Hi, my name is Michelle. I graduated from McKinley in 2018. I'll be graduating from UH this spring, so it'll make four years pretty soon. I don't mind the name. Also, I'm not Native Hawaiian, which is probably why I don't have that same kind of background and history with it. I feel like McKinley is just one thing out of like a lot of cultural things in Hawaii that could be changed. The statue, like I don't really have a pro or against for it. I think for McKinley alumni stepping on the Oval is more important, but the statue itself is more just there. I was in band, so you know things that have been passed on from um, each band generation, like having a model, having a banner, and then everything that we would do every year. It's the pride in having those traditions and like having them live on, and I think they're really connected to the McKinley name, which is why you know it also means a lot to us, and which is why we don't want to change it. But if the name was changed, I would understand. Hi, this is Susie Chen oakland
9: I'm an alumni of McKinley High School, 1979. I actually became aware of an effort to rename McKinley High School last year. My friend called and she wanted to know my views on it. You know, I would not support that change. I know most of my classmates and alums would not. There is a very deep pride for our school, and as we get older, we just appreciate all the things that um, the school and the faculty and our peers had to offer, you know. And when I was told that over the phone, I just felt so hurt inside and couldn't fathom anyone wanting to do that. So I really didn't have much words, a lot of upset inside. Um, It's like going into someone's home and saying, you know, we're going to remove your family name, basically. That's how it felt to me. My class, I think we had 900. My sister's class was 1,200 students. I hope that our school will not be renamed. We treasure the school and the name is included. We are
0: proud to be McKinley graduates and hope that that is not taken away. Do you have an opinion on the matter? House Resolution 24 and House concurrent Resolution 26 supports the renaming of McKinley High School and removal of President McKinley's statue. HR64 and HCR71 uh, seek to honor McKinley High's 132 fallen soldiers and to preserve the name. The measures will be heard via video conferencing at 2 p.m today.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about new drop-in workshops and spring art classes for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org.
0: Hawaii has no shortage of female pioneers, and in honor of Women's History Month, we're highlighting a few of their stories and their contributions to our community. Over the last three years, UH, UH at Manoa professor Noi Noe Silva has combed through editions of Hawaii's uh, Ka Hoku o Hawaii, the last Hawaiian-language newspaper to be published in the 1940s. Within its pages, she made a remarkable discovery. A handful of dedicated female columnists who stepped up to preserve Olelo Hawai'i and the knowledge of their communities through their writing. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Professor Silva about the legacy of these women and kahoku o Hawai'i,
10: here's Silva. There were thousands probably of people who did not read English that read only Olelo Hawai'i and so they got their news, their literature, games, these word puzzles called nāne, riddles and word puzzles. And they got communication with other speakers of olelo Hawaii from one end of the archipelago to another. So people in Ni'iha were reading the same newspaper as people on Hawaii Island. Those two poles of the archipelago are the places where there were more Hawaiian-speaking communities. And so they could get to know each other through the newspaper.
7: So in this period that you start with, 1938, a lot of olelo Hawaii newspapers have stopped publishing. Not because, as you say, there were a lack of speakers or a lack of interest, but because running a newspaper is hard. It's not particularly profitable. And so kahoku o Hawaii elicits both sponsorship, they're asking for people to subscribe to the paper, but also they want people to contribute, to contribute their writing and their stories. You've identified Sitzwahine that stepped up in relatively rapid succession and answered that call. Why do you think women were particularly drawn at this moment in time to
10: contribute to the kahuku, or do you think they were inspired by one another? I definitely think that they were inspired by one another. So it started out with Inez Ashdown, who's a writer, fairly well known writer. She's a, a non Hawaiian historian from Maui who published books and so forth. She was a well known writer during her lifetime in English as well as in Olelo Hawaii. And she learned Olelo Hawaii as a child. So she started sending her writing, and I'm not sure sure why. And then she turned it into a column. And then the other women followed suit. Like you say, if about every two months, another woman from another island would would start, you know, and say, oh, I want to do this too. And they had a lot of mahalo for each other. They included thanks to each other in their columns. They realized that the life of the language and the life of the newspaper at that point were intertwined, that the newspaper was a way of keeping the language alive. Several of them were teachers or working at schools, and I think that they didn't have enough resources to keep the language going. And so I think that they were concerned. One of them even wrote that the the students weren't particularly fluent in English or Hawaiian. (laughs) And they enjoyed the paper, too, and they enjoyed each other's writings, too. So part of what was going on in the paper was was pleasure in the language you know our kapuna delighted in the language the language is just full of games and elaborate metaphors and and uh, so they wanted to keep that kind of writing going they didn't want to lose that the people who were playing who were constructing these things specifically were trying to reach young people and and saying, you know, if you study and work hard, you can play this really fun game with us, which is also really, really hard. <laughs> so that was going on, too. There was a lot of pleasure, I think, in keeping the language going.
7: Yeah, you talk about how these, these women were sharing their stories with each other and with their readers. And a lot of their columns were details about their life and where in the islands they lived, which may seem a little pedestrian to us just at face value. But I wonder what we understand now, looking back at those, about the opportunities and experiences of women in that era because these women sat down to write about their lives.
10: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the Important things is that even up until today, although less so due to a lot of work by a lot of Kanaka, we're fighting against, and they were even more so, fighting against stereotypes and anti Hawaiian racism that was really blatant at the time. You can hear it in the songs from that time you know, the s- Hawaiians are on welfare and they're lazy and they just want to sit around and play the ukulele all day those kinds of things and so just by recording what they do and who they are we can see a s- school teacher business owner homestead farmer school principal these are serious people with serious purposes in life these women
7: are there other specific examples of the knowledge that would have been lost if we didn't have these columns?
10: Yes. So Abby Palea, she lived in Keikaha on Kauai, which is on the west side. The people of Ni'ihau and the people in in Keikaha and and Waimea are the same families. They go back and forth between the west side of Kauai and and Ni'ihau. So this is a Hawaiian-speaking community. It's in Ni'ihau. People with connections. She had family connections in Ni'ihau. So she wrote about her aina, and one of the epithets that she used for the area was kawaiili ula ame So kawaiili ula is the water that has a red surface, and waikea is a white water. And these two together used to be quite common, this epithet for the area. It describes that the Waimea River Waimea, by the way, means red water also. So the Waimea River is reddish. And then the Machiavelli River is clear. And then where they meet, you can still see that one side of the stream, <laughs> one side of the river is red and one side of the river is clear. Only one of those things has survived as far as what we have in reference materials. Only one of those terms, white Ili, Ula, has survived. And the other one kind of dropped off. Um, That's one thing. And then there's other place names and ways that people used to do things that are recorded in there that we may not have otherwise.
7: Yeah, you had a very... A fascinating and evocative example of a particular type of fishing strategy that was used, I believe, in Kialikikua Bay.
10: Yes, yes, I had forgotten about that. So that was Evelyn um, Deche, who went by the pen name of Kai Molino. Um, she describes, yeah, fishing there at Napo'opo'o. And, or wait, this might, I actually think this might have been in Miloli'i because it wasn't in her. It wasn't where she lived in Napoopo. I think they're at Miloli'i, And the people there had trained dogs to do the splashing to drive the fish into their nets. So she said there were four dogs, I think, that they had trained to do that. Yeah, that was an interesting detail. I don't know if maybe they still do that down there. I don't know.
7: They're such specific and powerful details that were just a part of these women's lives but to us provide a window into their experience and also an understanding of what Olelo Hawaii is specifically able to capture about the islands. Aside from the documentation that these women did, they came to these papers, or specifically to Kahoku o with the intention to perpetuate Olelo Hawaii, to perpetuate the Hawaiian language. Can you talk about the specific
10: initiatives they championed to preserve the language? Mm -hmm. So this went on from 1900 all the way up until the 1940s and then afterwards as we started again in the 1970s. There were bills entered into the legislature to increase the number of classes of olelo Hawaii in the schools to establish Olelo Hawaii schools in Hawaiian homes, homestead communities, and so forth. And so these women would champion those things in their columns and you know, ask people to participate and talk to their representatives and try to get these bills passed. They would also let people know when there were classes in their communities where they could go and learn Hawaiian, and they would, all of those kinds of things. Alice Bannum, Kanoi Ka'upunio Naleni, right at the time when she started writing her column, before she, just before, weeks before, she wrote into the newspaper to let them know that they were putting on a play at Lahaina Luna that was a three act play about the history of Lahaina Luna. This is going to be open to the public. Two acts of the three act play were in Olelo, Hawaii only with no translation. They wrote this and they performed it and this is in 1939. So there was a big enough audience around Lahaina that they felt that they could put on a play in which two-thirds of which was in Olelo, Hawaii. And she wrote to the paper saying this is what we're doing and I have the script um, if you folks would like to publish it. And the editor Solomon Anakalea said yes and then they published it, this whole History with songs and everything of the establishment of Lahaina Luna Seminary. So it was those kinds of things. So Alice uh, Bannum was her job was the matron. She was the matron of the dormitory and the dining hall, but she did so much more than that. So she doesn't say she wrote this, but I get the feeling she wrote it. <laughs> Or at least co-wrote it, right? She's very proud of this. And she was definitely directing or helping to direct this play and make sure it went on. So this kind of encouragement and this pride, the pride and the pleasure of Alelu Hawaii was inspiring to other people. And I think it kept them going a, a, a little bit longer, you know. And so when the newspaper ended in 1948, it wasn't that long before in 1972 that Larry Kimura established a a radio show every Sunday evening on KCCN AM. In Olelo Hawaii only, it wasn't that long that Olelo Hawaii wasn't audible and visible in some manner publicly. And so a lot of work had to be done between 1972 and today where we're able to have this discussion on Hawaii Public Radio. And we have thousands of students who've gone through programs in Olelo, Hawaii. We've made a lot of progress. so I have a lot of mahalo for them for continuing on and fighting back against this kind of racism against Hawaiians that was in the English paper every day rather than have a protest march or something. They're just like, well, I'm going to write. And just knowing their stories, just having their autobiographies is inspiring. That was UH professor Noe Noe
0: Silva sharing the stories of six female columnists who wrote for the Kahoku, Kahoku o Hawaii, the last Hawaiian-language newspaper in the 1940s. Professor Silva spoke with the conversation. Savannah harriman Poe.
4: Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin air conditioning systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Well, that's
0: it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanho show. We bring you conversations around music. Give us feedback, caller talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.